Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, our latest episode of The Conscious Capitalists, with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner, making the world a better place through business, Raj Lasodia. Hi there, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Great to be with you, as always. Ah, good to see you again. And today, we have an old friend from The Conscious Capitalism Movement, Simon Mainwaring. Now, Simon is a brand futurist, a global keynote speaker, columnist, podcaster, best-selling author of a couple of books that we'll talk about. And importantly, he's the founder and CEO of We First, which is a strategic brand consultancy that specializes in accelerating growth and the impact of future-facing purpose-driven brands. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about his latest book, which is called Lead With We, The Business Revolution That Will Save Our Future, which happens, just by the way, to be a Wall Street Journal bestseller. We'll talk a little bit about his previous book, we First, How Brands and Consumers Use Social Media to Build a Better World, which was both a New York Times and a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And Simon hosts his own podcast called Lead With We, where he dives in with business leaders about how brands survive crises, how they thrive in fast-changing markets, and drive growth through a challenging future. He also writes a column for Forbes magazine, and he was... Uh, at one point in his career, uh, an interim CMO at Tom, the famous two company in 2015. That was the same year. And we'll touch on this in a moment when he was a finalist for the global Australian of the year. Now that must be the one that he's probably most proud of. But as we get into Simon, you will notice something that there's this word that keeps popping up. We name of his company, We First, name of his book, Lead With We, last book, We First, Lead With We is the name of his podcast. I mean, hey, tell us a little bit, Simon, about We, why that matters and is so prominent in your life. Well, firstly, thanks for having me on and Raj and Tim, such a pleasure. And yes, as you say, old friends who I dearly love and respect. So I, I love being here and thanks for the chance to share some thinking. Um, you know, it, I could explain it in rational terms, but in truth, it was an instinct. Back in 2011, you know, three years after the global economic meltdown, I had a strong instinct that, you know, the root problem of what got us into 2008 and 2007, 2008 was that me first mentality where it was profit for profit's sake or my success over the back of others. And that didn't seem to serve anybody well because fewer and fewer people seem to do well at the cost of a growing number of people. And just as an Australian, it just didn't seem fair to me. I had no intention of writing a book. I had no, you know, desire to kind of step into the thought leadership world. It just seemed wrong to me. And I really struggled with that for a while. I really sat there and I, I happened to read the speech that Bill Gates gave at the World Economic Forum that year, his creative capitalism speech, where he said the private sector needs to play a bigger role in social change. And the fact that he told it, called it creative capitalism 
struck a note with me because, you know, um, I was an advertising creative at the time and um, it seemed like a brief. And anyway, net, net, the the tonic or the alternative to a me first mentality, the, the, the idea of we really rose to the fore. And I've always felt that we have a deep, deep connection as a human family. I've always felt, as someone who grew up in Australia outdoors, a deep connection to the natural world. And when you see a divisive human family, you see people's lives being compromised and you see the planet at risk, then you go, what's missing from this? And how do I communicate that in a really, really simple way? And so the focus on we is both because it's universal, it's accessible, it can mean many different things telescopically, we, my family, my community, my business sector, society at large, the global family. But also, more importantly, I don't think it's about learning something new. It's about remembering what we forgot, which is our fundamental connection to each other and the planet. So the word we is so prominent because I think it's foundational to who we are as a species and our relationship to the planet. And the sooner we work our way back there, the sooner we can actually provide solutions that will improve life for everyone. I love that. I love that. And and in your latest book, you talk about we first capitalism. So, you know, it's interesting. You referred to Bill Gates and the creative capitalism. And, you know, of course, we've met through conscious capitalism. Now we have we first capitalism. So maybe say a little bit about what's the core nugget there that makes that a, a, an important phrase and different from some of these other forms of capitalism. Yeah, I think there's three components when you look at we first. I mean, there's the primacy of we over me, which is, and the me is an unconscious bias or priority in a lot of the ways that capitalism was operating. And firstly, as an arch capitalist, as a diehard capitalist, I want to acknowledge that capitalism takes many forms at different times and has different structures and so on. So it's there's no one set form of capitalism. But even above and beyond that, it's practiced in different ways at different times. But mm-hmm. those caveats aside, with the primacy of me, putting we first is a really a big shift. And then second, the first aspect of it, the primacy of it, the priority of it is another element to consider. And then putting the two together that we're putting all stakeholders working together to the greatest collective benefit of everyone, that is a foundational, a fundamental shift. And I say that because, you know, if you can intellectually understand this, you can go, oh, right, we should all be part of one human family. We should look after the planet. That's self-evident and obvious. I get that. But when you think about putting we first as a CEO or as a CHRO or as a marketer or an R&D and product innovation, You know, it transforms what you prioritize, how you communicate, the ideas you come up with, the products you take to market, how you take them to market. And it's a seismic shift in the way you actually execute business. It's just not, it's not an abstract concept. It's not a thought leadership idea. In practical terms, it's a radical re-engineering of priorities in business. So, you know, with a view to improving lives for the greatest number of people with a view to our future. Love it. Love it. I think the, the transition from me to we is not just, you know, a simple word change. So me is just about the individual, but we can be at many levels, right? So there's a we as in our team, there's a we as in our company, there's a we as in our country, there's a we as in, as in our planet, right? We're all together here. And I think that is the critical piece that has been missing, I think, in traditional way of thinking about capitalism. You know, we had David Sloan Wilson on here some time back. He's an evolutionary biologist who talks about multi-level selection. Right? So when we make a decision, 
in our system, most people think that if each individual just does what's best for them, that that will somehow amount to what's best for all of us. And that's not necessarily true. So what's good for the individual may not be good for the group. It may not, what's good for the group may not be good for the organization. And what's good for the organization may not be good for the country. And what's good for the country may not be good for the planet. And so we have to make decisions factoring all of those you know, at the same time. Right? Simultaneously, it needs to benefit at every level. And not forgetting the me. The me does well when the we does well as well. Right. So this is not a kind of forced collectivism. That's not what I think you are, you are advocating and certainly what we're not advocating either. But I think it's, it's, it's broadening that lens and bringing in all of those levels at which you do have an impact, whether you take it into account or not. I think you're right. You know, not making a decision is having a decision. Not engaging is having a decision. And I think, you know, there is, I want to distinguish to your, to your point about sort of the me within all of this. I distinguish between selfishness, which is doing something at the expense of others, and healthy self-interest, which is looking after yourself, your families, your community as you should. And to that end, if you were the most selfish, self-serving person in the world, I would argue that you would defer to making sure the integrity of the whole is in place, the natural, the social, the living systems that make life and business possible, because that ultimately gives you the greatest benefit. And we see the opposite right now, where we see whether it's through the lens of the climate crisis or extreme weather or biodiversity, we see the living systems breaking down and the consequences on that in terms of society at large or business or your company or your community or your payroll. And so this whole we first approach is really about respecting the relationship between the whole and the parts and making sure that we ultimately serve all of us most effectively as possible by shoring up the integrity of the whole. And I think that mimics nature in a lot of ways as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, see, the interesting piece is that I think a reasonable person will find it hard to argue with that. I mean, when you when you put it that way. Now, the the challenge is that the measuring stick that's used today in the quote unquote business world is profit, and um, it's a financial metric. And one of the things that you know, Raj, you and I brought up several times is. This idea of there's these externalities that the one that Will Raj likes to say there are no externalities, but yet there are, and they don't show up on the, your P and L, they don't show up on your balance sheet, and it seems to me that as we get into this discussion about capitalism and about the we and the me, we need to be changing our measuring uh, our measuring stick, and if we don't start linking, how do we measure these externalities and bring them into the business equation? then we're not seeing true P&Ls. We're not really understanding. We're only looking at financial profit and we're not looking at all the costs and other things fully. But if we fully cost it, business might be unleashed in a different way. What do you think about that? No, I absolutely agree. And you're seeing that happen. And I think it's happening for one very interesting reason. The consequences of our individual and collective actions are now causing us costs in, of things that are far more valuable than money in the broadest terms, our future or our hopes, but specifically, you know, biodiversity or habitats around the world, which makes our lives possible. And so the closer we come to that edge, and some of the most recent research has found that, you know, the Amazon, for example, is at that tipping point after which, you know, it can cascade towards a savanna rather than be a rainforest, you know, and so on, which will have a huge effect. As we reach those tipping points, we are being forced to reconsider whether profit alone 
is not only the right motive, but the smartest motive for our future. And when we look at natural capital and, and nature positive and all of this new language entering the vernacular of the sustainability ESG, you know, business space, we're starting to see that the value of seagrass or the value of a certain habitat and putting a dollar value on that because we realize ultimately the knock-on effect, you know, for the loss of that. So, you know, I think we're at a necessary inflection point in terms of what we prioritize and, and appropriate to that inflection point is a lot of confusion and complexity as, you know, CSDR, you know, the regulations around sustainability in Europe are, are playing out with 1,500 KPIs through which you can measure the impact of your company and so on. You know, I think there's a flight towards measuring those externalities and from a regulatory point of view being seen to be held accountable. At the same time, it's a little disorientating and overwhelming for a lot of the companies that are trying to show up. But I think this is a natural point in the evolution from pure profit to that healthy balance of profit and purpose that we, we hope is possible, you know, for, for all business more broadly, if we're going to have a future we can look forward to. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I gave a talk in Palm Beach, <laughs> the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, and the title was Awake, Not Woke Capitalism. Now, you're in the backyard of Ron DeSantis, and you're just down the road from a certain presidential candidate who we shall not name. Um, and you know, so clearly what you've said, you know, we'd be aligned with, but now there's this whole anti ESG, this sort of anti woke, this is woke capitalism, you know, it's quarterly earnings report time. Who cares about the damn seagrass? Um, how do you, what, what's your reply to the, the, the growing movement in the U S and particularly in the U S right now around, oh, that's just woke. Yeah. Well, I think the root of the problem is deeper than language like woke or insert divisive term here. The premise of conflict, which has been compounded by social media and the echo chamber of the media channels out there, um, is that we are going to live our way of being in the world is adversarial. It's us versus them. It's fear based. It's individuated. It's based on scarcity, which the stock market compounds day in, day out in terms of stock prices and so on. All of that is to say that until we recognize that we need to work together to achieve, to, to meet the challenges we face with equal force, then it doesn't matter what the issue is. Whatever it is, it's going to be demonized. It's going to polarize people. But the root problem of that is us versus them. I mean, look at the fight against climate. Climate is not fighting back against us. Climate is just giving us appropriate feedback for how humanity is showing up in the world. And if we don't like that feedback, then we need to change what we're doing. But this adversarial mindset, which is the opposite of a we mentality, is really the root of our undoing, I believe. Simon, uh, when I first met you some years ago, I think it was at the Transformational Leadership Council meeting. And... Um, you, know, you talked about your work with purpose-driven branding, and, and I think you're probably one of the leading experts in that domain, making sure that every, every brand, not only the company has a purpose, but the brand has a purpose. That's really not just a word or a clever slogan, but that actually is something that is seeking to make a difference. So, so if you could share some of your work that you've done, some of the clients that you've worked with and helped them and how it's transformed them. Uh, and, and the impact that's had on their relationships with their, not only their customers, but their employees. 
and other stakeholders. So just talk to us about your core of your work, which I believe still is purpose-driven branding. Absolutely. And thank you for the question. I mean, um, so We First is a strategic consultancy that accelerates growth and impact for purpose-driven brands. What we specifically do is we, from a strategy point of view, at the enterprise or brand level, define the purpose and positioning of a company. You might be a legacy brand, a 100-year-old brand that never did that. They never really had a purpose. You might be a purpose leader that needs to re-up because everyone's piling into the space and hijacking your language. But that's the strategy piece. The second piece is we do culture building to make sure that what that self-stated strategy is true of the organization. So upstream to your suppliers, all the way down to the products you take to market and your impact program. We pull that through the company culture, through training, through tools, through a rollout plan. And then thirdly, we do impact storytelling. And that impact storytelling might be through the lens of corporate responsibility or philanthropy. It could be through your ESG report. It could be B Corp, um, SDGs, ESG. And more recently, you know, the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of strategy work and rollout work around ESG, climate, and carbon. And we do it for three different groups of um, companies. They are either private equity or venture-backed startups that are really that have the, the wisdom that they want to build the brand out of the gate, not just get a product to market or get some beachhead out there, and then two or three years down the track go, oh, wow, we forgot to build a brand, or we've done all these tactical things that don't ladder up to a singular story. The second group is purpose leaders. So we work with Tom's and Timberland and Virgin Unite and Traditional Medicinals and Allbirds, a lot of these companies that people point to, point to and say, wow, they're you know, um, doing it right or leading the way. And then we work with a lot of global enterprises. So from Avery Dennison to VF Corp to VSP Vision, right now we're working with Unilever and Moderna and Thai Union. And these are all publicly traded global enterprises that have very, very extensive brand portfolios. And I would, I'll characterize the problems that we solve for in a few ways, because maybe this is instructive to your listeners in terms of reflecting back what they're struggling with. Because often when we hear from a client what their challenge is, that they articulate the symptoms without actually addressing the root problem, because they're so close to it, it's hard to read the label from inside the jar. So, you know, often, a brand has never really, whether it's an enterprise or a brand, has never really articulated what its unique role in the world is, what its foundational purpose is that should inform everything upstream and downstream all the way to its customers, all the way back up to its suppliers. And as I said, we find typically legacy brands may never have had to do that. They had a sleepy old mission from 1980 that sat in their annual report that never was put to work. Or you've got these young companies that want to come out of the gate and sort of do it the right way. Um, or you have large enterprises or well-established brands, multi-billion dollar brands that do lots of tactical things, but there's no red thread between those tactical efforts. And what happens is the experience of the not only the consumer, but the employee is that they're schizophrenic. They're doing this and they're doing that and they're doing this over here, but what's the red thread that connects it all? So we'll define their purpose, their positioning to articulate that. On the culture side, you know, you've had the great resignation, you've had quiet quitting, you've had arguably the power but shift back to, his, to employers who are now trying to get people back into the office. And very, very often we find that whether it's because of a large global footprint or because a company is very siloed or because they've had a real or restructuring or layoffs during COVID and beyond, that their culture has suffered. 
Yet culture is the animating force of a company, the human capital that you invest in every day, that top line item on your P&L. How are you going to invest in that to unlock the greatest return for your business? So we're brought in more often than not, and this is some of the work that we're doing with uh, Unilever right now, is to help them really think through how you build a cohesive culture, not only at an enterprise level, but at a brand level across a number of brands, but also how do you create that that special something in the air that when you walk into the offices of a company or you speak to an employee, you just feel it. You just feel it. You know that of Patagonia. I used to work on Nike when I was an ad guy. You know it of Nike. Those companies that is just in the air. You just know that everybody knows why they work there. It is personally meaningful to them and it really does animate their daily role. So that's the culture piece. And on the impact storytelling side, we often find companies large and small are doing great work. They're just not getting credit for it. So, for example, when we worked with L'Oreal on a number of their brands, Maybelline, they were doing a lot of work around health and um, mental health in young women. So we created this platform with them called Brave Together, which is now in 52 markets around the world. Or another of the L'Oreal brands was, um, you know, Armani Beauty, and they're providing clean water access to 1 million people by 2030. And we worked with them and other partners to create this campaign called Be a Source, where at point of sale, you buy a product. But in buying that product, you are a source of water and all that that means for those communities, underserved communities in the, in the global south. Or we then worked with Essie on a campaign called Hands All In, which is all about self-expression and community and connection through nail art. So it doesn't matter what your product is. You can have an, a, an impact that's peculiar to your product, your category, your industry. But how do you take that to market to deliver business value? And that's where we come in. Well, I really, uh, you know, I appreciate that because I think, as you may know, my background is in marketing. I got a PhD in marketing, started yeah. teaching marketing in the 1980s, you know, which was, you know, called but the we decade. were just, you know, we were like kids, right? We were five years um, old, you and I, Raj, it right? Was, <laughs> but it was, it was, uh, you know, almost, it's insane, really, the amount of marketing that went on and the hype and the hoopla and the, you know, the gimmicks and the coupons and the junk mail and, you know, just a mania of marketing really, uh, in a way, alienated me from my own profession. And I, I really had this self-concept that I used to internally think my father got a PhD in genetics, and plant science. He wanted to cure world hunger, and I got a PhD in marketing, and I'm just here selling more junk. You know? He kept looking and, at you uh, with a mixture of pride and puzzlement. Like, that's <laughs> great. My, my son is a professor of marketing. Of ma professor of <laughs> Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the inverted quotes. And so I almost had, I had a lot of misgivings. I almost had a sense of shame about it. Right. I wrote a book called Does Marketing Need Reform? I almost wrote a book called The Shame of Marketing, mm. pointing out that we were spending in 2004 a trillion dollars on marketing. If you add it all up, right? Ads and coupons and junk mail and, and constant sales and so forth. And that was more than the income of 85% of the world's people on a per capita basis we were spending. Right, that and by the way, the GDP of India was seven hundred billion. That so we were spending more on ads, coupons, and junk mail here than a billion people were living on in India. I said, what are we getting from all this? And so my frustration with that, you know, and of course the negative consequences using women's bodies to sell products, what that does to young women, and you know, in terms of eating disorders and body dysmorphia and depression, and you know, getting kids hooked on all kinds of junk and junky food and so forth. So there, just I found a lot of abuse in marketing and so firms of endearment was an outshoot of that you know, what, what started as shame of marketing became in search of marketing excellence and that became firms of endearment so that's a long way of asking a question 
that marketing obviously is an important business function, but in the past, and maybe still today to some degree, it was used in a way that actually doesn't serve the well-being, happiness, and fulfillment of our customers. You know, I'm just watching the series Painkiller, which is about uh, OxyContin, right? And there was another one called Dopesick, also the same story. And it is incredible how marketing is at the center of that. All of those deaths and all those people getting hooked and given false promises, yeah. right? These people motivated purely by greed to sell as much as possible, regardless of the consequences. And I feel like we've been stuck in that mindset in marketing when it comes to many product categories. And so I think you are one of the pioneers in helping us reclaim a higher ground for marketing. What is marketing? It's about the well-being of our customers. It's about enhancing the quality of their lives. And that phrase, shame of marketing, comes from Drucker, where he referred to the consumer movement as the shame of marketing. He said, if consumers have to organize against companies, that means you failed. You right. failed to look after their well-being, right? So how do we chart a course towards conscious marketing that has its own higher purpose, which to me is about enhancing the quality of life and overall sense of well-being of our customers, right? right? And then how do we do that in a respectful way that serves them, not tries to get them hooked on stuff and then just exploits those, those addictions, right? How do we create this field called conscious marketing? Right. I mean, this is such a powerful question. And um, you know, what comes to mind is that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here that quote, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., like the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And, and as context, I share that because I think what happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we became more enamored and drunk on the power of media to actually tell us what to think, do, and buy. You know, the medium was the message, as, you know, I think it was Malcolm McLaren said way back when, or, but, you know, uh, the whole point being, that since then, as the consequences of those priorities have played out in our lives from obesity and addiction and all these different things that you touched on, Raj, we're starting to peel that back. We're being exposed through the lens of the green movement, sustainability, ESG, net positive, nature positive, whatever it might be, what that is in fact doing is peeling back those disingenuous layers of the onion that were kind of compounded and fortified over the preceding decades as we were just coming to terms with the power of technology through the lens of media and how it could shape our lives. So I think we're unwinding a lot of things that weren't serving us well, principally not because we want to, but because we have to accept how the harm it's doing in our lives, all the way from the climate crisis through to obesity or you know whatever the other issue may, may be. With that as context, how do we then recharacterize marketing? I think marketing and, you know, just as background, I was a, a writer and creative director and worldwide creative director for 18 years before I kind of moved to WeFer, started WeFer. So I spent a lot of time in Australia, Europe, and all over America in this area. Um, marketing has this outside-in presumption where it's managing the optics. And as, a, as an extension of what I said, how we're peeling it back the disingenuous layers, what I think we need to do is to shift from marketing to movement making. And movement making is an inside out approach where you as a company reconstitute how you lead, how you treat your people, how you make your product, what products you make, how you take them to market. And then really what you're doing through your storytelling, as opposed to your marketing, is documenting the integrity and truth of your intent in ways that are going to be meaningful and resonant with your stakeholders. So the first thing I'd say is move from marketing to movement making. 
The second thing I'd say is, not surprisingly, a lot of this traditional marketing, shall we say, was self-directed. Look at us. I don't know, back in the day, Coke is it, or Levi's is cool, or whatever it might be. But that's very self-serving and self-directed. Instead, in all the work that we do, we first, we believe you've got to be the celebrant, not celebrity of your stakeholder community, which means you've got to get off yourself and onto others. And by that, I mean, celebrate your suppliers and the efforts they're making with biofabrication to make leather goods that don't come at the cost of an animal's life. Or celebrate your employees on their volunteer day or how the, the, the hackathon that they do to operate their business more you know, um, responsibly to the planet. Or celebrate your customers or consumers, how they're rallying around an opportunity you've created to have an impact out there in the world. And celebrate your nonprofit foundation, NGO partners, and their boots on the ground expertise and so on. And what's so powerful about this is that you, um, when you get off yourself and onto others, Firstly, people pay more attention because they're interested in themselves. Secondly, because they're interested in themselves and they pay attention, they share it with others. And thirdly, when you do it that way, it creates a halo effect around your brand because as you elevate them, by default, you're elevated as a function of all of that sort of spotlight, spotlighting you're doing on your various stakeholders. So if you can be the celebrant, not celebrity, it makes all the difference. And then the third point I'd make, and you know, a lot of these things are laid out and lead with we. That, but um, the third one is really to shift from calls to action to calls to activism. Every single person out there today looks at their phone or their computer and worries about their future. You cannot look at the fires in Greece or Sardinia or Maui or all of these things going on and not worry about what our future is going to look like, in which case they want opportunities to partner with brands to activate their own agency for change. How can you as a company create a product that feels responsible to their future and an opportunity that allows them to say, by buying this product, celebrating this brand, talking about it to somebody else and joining in their initiative, I am part of the solution rather than part of the problem. So if you shift from marketing to movement making, if you're the celebrant rather than the celebrity and you shift from calls to action to calls to activism, marketing becomes storytelling that turns on the integrity of your intent. And that's when you win the day. So I absolutely love that approach. And I love the way you articulated it. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate. Please. So you're Disney, mm -hmm. you're Bud Light, mm -hmm. you're Target, mm -hmm. and you're starting to see pushback around some of your activism, even if it's light activism or yeah. Slightly unintentional, maybe with Bud Light, I don't know. But, um, and so how in a world where you promote activism, do you do it in such a way that you're still getting to your customer, but not getting into this values discussion that leads to the kind of action or the kind of pushback that we're seeing around some of what they might call these activist campaigns, for certain companies. A few points I'd say there. One, the presumption that pushback is bad when you're taking a stand on something doesn't make sense mm -hmm. to me. You're making mm -hmm. a stand, and that inherently polarizes people, and they're going to be those who are on one side of the fence and those who are another, on the other. Mm -hmm. Secondly, if companies want to play both sides of the fence on any particular issue because they want mm -hmm. to be appealing to the widest marketplace opportunity, then they're going to fail on both fronts because they won't 
kind of win the loyalty, ongoing loyalty of those who have a certain point of view and want to align with a brand that reflects their point of view. And they won't convince the people on the other side of the fence that they generally don't have that point of view. And they'll fall between two stools. But the yeah. large point here is consistency. And let me explain what I mean. If you see a brand that is sufficiently self-defined and self-assured, that it knows its point of view on any number of issues, whatever that point of view is, no politics, yeah. no judgment, whatever that point yeah. of view is, and they stick to it consistently, when you see them behave consistently with that, when there's a cultural flashpoint, then you go, of course, that's who they are. The ah. challenge I think a lot of companies are facing, especially those that haven't traditionally taken a stance on yeah. button issues, probably because they're publicly traded and there's a lot of investor pressure and they prioritize profit over everything. Yeah. When they yeah. do take a stance on something, it comes out of the blue. And then people will be like, that's either opportunism on your part or um. there's on the other side of the fence will say, you know what, we don't agree with you. But if you look at someone like a Patagonia that pushed back around the bear's ears, my getting mining rights yeah. to bear's ears, and they wanted to sue the then president at the time. I talked to Patagonia at the time and I said, well, how come you were able to, to do a website takeover within a day and spin up this yeah. new platform that allowed people to work with nonprofits that were um, you know, trying to protect the environment? And they said, well, we've been doing this for over 10 years. And this was just the latest expression of an ongoing and very clear commitment to an issue. So my larger point here would be to spin up activism in inverted commas in the moment invites trouble. Yeah. Yeah. But if you actually step back and as an SLT, ELT, board level, whatever it might be, decide what you are going to speak to on certain issues and only issues that are relevant to your brand. Don't try and play all issues. It's not about cultural whack-a-mole and you know what can you say about every issue out there, but rather what is meaningful to your brand. Do that consistently. You don't have to boil the ocean at once. Do it consistently. And when a cultural flashpoint does come along, then people won't react because you've already carved out leadership in that category and mind share in that category, and it's appropriate to your business. Mm, brilliant. Brilliant. Well, just before we started the podcast, we had a little, a brief little discussion where we were talking about the sense of urgency right. um, that lies behind these changes. And one of the things that I'm observing is the younger generation is running out of patience. You know, they're, they're, they're very open to the activist claim of let's go lie down on the highway and we'll block the petrol stations or the gas stations. And you know, we'll take this very sort of negative action to sort of get people by the collar and sort of say, don't you see, we can't, we don't have time. Right. And the system that you're describing, which I think our generation ascribes to more, which is look at the friggin' process progress we've made since 20, yeah. 2008. We've yeah. come a long way in 15 years. We've come a long way in 10 years. And yet the younger generation sitting there going, are you kidding? Mad? We can't go down this path. We're not getting there fast enough. It's time for the revolution. How do you address that when you get into this discussion of activism and, and, and dressing the younger people's requirements or demands now increasingly around activism and what it means to the older generation who are also part of your customer base and also have their ideas about what activism means? I think, you know, in the choir of change, there's many voices. 
And if you look historically at any issue, ever since the counterculture, you know, in the last mm. century and so on, you know, there are those who are much more sort of um, provocative, lying on highways or doing what, as you say, and then there are those who are working behind the scenes, you know, the unsung heroes who are, who are driving change. And I think there's a place for all of it. I think it'd be foolhardy to suggest that we're going to stop those who are just so at a loss as to how their future has been forfeited from painting graffiti over the headquarters of Shell headquarters. You know, um, you know. Oh. I, I think there's always going to be a place for that sort of strident activism. You see people throwing soup on famous works of art in Europe and so on. Yeah. They're trying to leverage the power of media to raise awareness. Is it right or wrong? It's not for me to say, but to, to suggest that there's only going to be one or the other and, and the, there's a right way to go about driving change. Um, mm. What I would say is this, as we've explored the lineage of language around the climate crisis from global warming all the way through to where we are today with the climate emergency and all the bodies that have been convened to try and frame it the right way, my mm. understanding is net-net, it needs to be inclusive and it needs to be positive because you know, fear-mongering disincentivizes people. And so mm. all of that is to say that whether it's activism or whether it's the language that is the framing of activism, it needs to be inclusive and positive and inspirational and um, localized rather than something that's just too out of reach for it to be effective. And so, you know, if you're a brand trying to reach all these demographics, here's the last thing I'll say in it. This is so easy and so hard to win in today's marketplace. And it is so easy because all you've got to do is get really clear about who you are and what you stand for and not compromise. Really? And that is really hard to do. Mm. But I believe there's these challenges we face are not sitting there out in the future statically waiting for us to arrive. They are mm. compounding and hurtling back towards us in the present. So it is creating this hockey stick of expectation on business, exponential, not linear. We can't incrementally mm. iterate our way to a better future. It's not linear. It's exponential, in which case mm. you've got to exponentially double down on how you're showing up. So if you to ask me privately over one beer too many in a pub, you know, like what the hell should we be doing? You should get really clear about what you stand for, who you are, and what you're when you're going to stand up, you know, speak up, show up. And the greater the integrity of intent you have, the greater the market forces will reward you as the stakes get ever higher, because people's intolerance will rise. Mm proportion to the urgency of the issues we're solving for. And therefore, the more you counterintuitively lean into your integrity, instead of trying to play the market, the more the market will reward you. Love it. Love it. Well, to change subjects a little bit as we, as we come to the end here, uh, Simon, you know, five years ago, around this time, uh, I was writing a book called The Healing Organization. And I talked to Lynn Twist about the idea and interviewed her. And then she called me and said, if you're writing a book about healing, you need to come to the Amazon rainforest with the Pachamama Alliance and the founder's journey that happens in August. And you're going to learn more about healing in those 10 days than you might learn in five years of research. And so it was almost a command. I said, okay, yes, I'm coming. And I did. And, you know, it turned out to be a really profound experience for me. First of all, to connect us to nature. You know, we, we come out of this planet and yet we have separated ourselves from the rest of nature. And so to get that profound, visceral uh, understanding of how embedded we are. 
in, in the nature, learning from the indigenous wisdom around that. And then, of course, experiencing a variety of healing modalities with those shamans. Now, I understand that you've done that recently as well. So I want to know what called you, uh, what made you decide to go on that, and what can you share with our listeners about what you learned uh, while you were there? It was such a privilege, as you say, to go. And, you know, Lynn, who we both know and deeply respect, had been hassling me for a while to go. And, you know, after we came back, she said, you didn't trust me, did you? But you finally came. It took you a while to come around. And what called me to go was, you know, having finished my recent book, Lead With We, I was pretty spent and exhausted and a blank slate. Like, personally, my interior life, I was like, I'm done. I got nothing to offer and I want to feed myself. I felt pretty um, exhausted and down and COVID had been hard and so on. So I And I also was intrigued because I've always deeply believed that we don't have to learn something new. We've just got to remember what we forgot. There are foundational, um, innate qualities to being a human that are undeniable in our private moments. When we watch television or the media, we just seem like we're distorted versions of ourselves. And I wanted to look back to that. And I, So I, I started to think, well, what if we went back to Indigenous wisdom all around the world, growing up in Australia with Aboriginal cultures, but then Brazil and so many other markets. And so I went out there and I wanted to talk to the elders and the shaman of these Indigenous tribes through translators to understand how they frame language about our relationship between humanity and the natural world. Um, because I see our role as translators back to business to make it accessible, but also actionable to think and behave in ways that ultimately serve our best and highest good. And so, um, you know, it was 21 days there and there was three tribes, um, Achwa, Zappara and other, another tribe. And um, um, it was an Im- incredibly emotional experience. You know, as you know, Raj, you fly in, you're going through the valley of the volcanoes, you go through the cloud forest and you take planes in and then canoes. And, and then you're literally, you know, um, in, in tribal huts right by the, the Amazon. And each morning I would get up and dive into the Amazon and hold on to rock underneath the, 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 the water, which was strong enough, the current to knock you off your feet and just hold on to it and literally feel the Amazon like powering through your body. And I did that every day. And it was just like, so I can feel it just even talking about it right now. And um, a couple of things that really stuck with me. Um, when you just imagine in your mind's eye, if you take away your phone, you take away your computer, you take away the news, the context around you. You take around the take away the communities, the cities, the developed or global north world that you live in, and you're in pristine, arguably untouched jungle. Firstly, that is such a shift. You sort of expand. Your your spine expands. You know, all these things fall away. You find yourself laughing more. You know, you suddenly become that person that you'd forgotten since you started getting compressed by all that life is. Then secondly, when you immerse yourself in what is this unbridled explosion, this fireworks display, this New Year's Eve of natural wonder that is just populating the air around you everywhere, you're just like awestruck. You are just walking around. And I had a visceral experience in the fact that we are nature, but we are human nature. We are the human expression of nature. And we, each individual, each of us are just one little sort of data point in terms of that animating force of life. And that's very humbling. I think what we need to do to get ourselves back on our track is to get out in nature. Why? Because, you know, on the strength of this experience, when you get out in nature, you right-size your place in the world. A few of the things that were shared with me that really struck me, one was there's no credit for doing your duty. And I think that was very humbling for me to hear because even if we're doing good in the world, we feel like you get some sort of recognition 
institutional credit. The whole premise that the way we, we live in the world is based on risk and reward or get some sort of affirmation. The second thing that they shared was um, that if you take more than you need, it's considered a sign of madness or mental ill health. For the very reason I was talking about before, that if you take more than you need, then you threaten the integrity, the well-being of the whole, and therefore the parts can't thrive. And then thirdly, one of the gentlemen shared with me that um, they consider wealth when you have enough to give something away to someone else. And all of those are symptomatic of a deep belief where they believe that every tree and every plant was part of their family. And they feel it viscerally when they see the, the oil and drilling and, and logging that goes on in their regions. This is literally their family that is being lost. And the communities in any one tree, there's a community of thousands of organisms and so on. So I came away from that experience, Raj, just deeply, deeply humbled, disturbed by how we're showing up in the world, present, so present to what's being lost and just so full of shame in terms of how we've convinced ourselves and others as to the how right our way of thinking is in the world. When it doesn't serve the planet, it doesn't serve our future, and truth be told, it doesn't even serve ourselves. And so coming back to urgency, I feel like this younger generation is coming through with a heightened sense of urgency to reprioritize things. I think the natural world is giving us appropriate feedback, and I deeply believe this isn't the end of something. I believe that this is the beginning of the most breathtaking renaissance in business that we have ever seen. When we start to work with nature rather than against it and, and serve nature rather than steal from it and recognize it, that these habitats are littered with biological blueprints with all the intelligence developed over millions of years that we need to live even better in ways that will be fulfilling to us. And so I don't look at this as a negative period. I see that this is an appropriate painful rebirth of business. And we will look back in a decade, it's certainly two decades time, and say that this was a necessary evil, but the most important transition in business in the history of humanity. And we all have an amazing future to look forward to. Wow. What a brilliant call to arms, a call to action. And I can't recommend enough that you go and you read Simon's book about this, his latest book, Lead With We, The Business Revolution that will save our future. Simon, that was brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and the energy you brought today. No, thank you. Thank you. I have so much respect for you both, Raj and Tim, and all that you've done for so long. And, you know, there's nothing we can't do if we do it together. And, and that's the whole point. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. we have a lot to be excited about. Yeah. One of the big takeaways from today, and to reinforce again, is this mindset shift that's required. It's about changing how we think. Until we change how we think and go from me to we, then collaboration is going to be replaced by competition, by scarcity and fear rather than love and abundance and working together on these things. So with much love to you, Simon, thank you. And thank you, thank you to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you enjoyed today's podcast on whatever channel you're subscribing or listening to us, please hit the subscription button. And if you feel so moved, come on over to Apple and iTunes and leave us a rating and leave us some comments. Raj and I always love to hear from you. And thanks to Tech Sounds and to Tech Demo RA for their production and sponsorship of this podcast. And thank you again, Simon, and we'll 
you all next week. 